on this episode of China Unscripted. The Chinese Communist Party is an unprecedented threat to the United States, but division in the government hampers America's ability to fight back. Now the CCP uses the ideology of deception to deceive us. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Bill Gertz. He's the national security correspondent for The Washington Times, and his most recent book is Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. There's a, a lot has happened. Great to be on the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so this past week, I think what's, re what's really interesting is like Xi Jinping gave this big speech where he's usually pretty measured about how he talks about the U.S., but this time he was very much the U.S. is the problem using Cold War rhetoric like, you know, the U.S.'s uh, containment of China. That was followed up by uh, the new national... The new foreign minister. New foreign minister. Uh, Qin Gang also talking about, you know, conflict and confrontation being inevitable unless... Washington backs off. Is this is this change in rhetoric significant? Do you think? Uh, no, no, not really. I think that the Chinese have been using this alarmist uh, rhetoric for some time, and it fits perfectly with their efforts to try and manipulate the Biden administration's China policy. And what they've done is basically the the, the Biden administration has announced publicly that. Rather than having a policy of peace through strength, they have a, what I call a, a, a war avoidance strategy. And that means that the Chinese are manipulating the policy by making alarmist comments. Uh, Qin Gang, for instance, uh, Xi Jinping just recently said um, uh, that uh, ha issued a new phrase that included the willingness to fight or to struggle. Uh, so I think that this is all part of a plan to get more concessions out of the Biden administration. If you recall, uh, early on, I think it was in 2021, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman went to China. And during that time, she was presented a list of demands from China. And it was kind of outrageous that they would do that. But the list of demands was that if the United States wants uh, better relations with China. It has to totally revamp uh, the Trump era uh, policy, uh, which really was revolutionary in terms of rejecting the 40-year-old uh, engagement policy that was really an utter failure in trying to uh, force China to change its behavior and become a more normal uh, non-communist or non-threatening power. When you say that the Biden administration has announced a war avoidance policy. Like, what have they done that makes you say that? Well, um, the uh, the Trump administration, um, through the Sec uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and his staff, uh, initiated a number of really uh, important changes, uh, which was, uh, as as Miles Yu, uh, Pompeo's top China aide, said, it was the U.S. had an anger management policy towards China. Don't do anything to make the dragon angry. Um, Biden came in and announced that, well, we're going to try, we're going to compete uh, with China, but we're also going to cooperate. Uh, so the Biden administration looks at uh, its, its competition as some kind of geopolitical uh, Olympics, which contrary to the Chinese, they've made very clear 
there is going to be no cooperation with the United States uh, unless the United States changes its policy and basically goes back to the appeasement-oriented policy. So they, that's, there's that. And by the way, uh, the Chinese have been waging what they call three warfares, uh, legal warfare, opinion warfare, and media warfare. So they don't, they don't talk about it in terms of competition. They're, they're engaged in this gray zone, non-kinetic warfare against the United States. Well, I'm curious about the, uh, you know, the idea that you say that the Biden administration has like changed policy to appease China, because one of the things Qinggang talked about as a red line was the Taiwan issue. He was kind of vague about what specifically that meant. But I know, for instance, recently it uh, came out that the Biden administration has quadrupled the number of U.S. troops in Taiwan. So, I mean, that seems like it's not a move that would make the Chinese Communist Party happy. Yeah, I think that's Taiwan is one area where the administration has not uh, fully gone full of uh, neo appeasement, as I would say. Um, on the other hand, there is a debate within the Biden administration between the more leftist radical uh, policy people. And I would put John Kerry and the climate czar in that uh, uh, category and the more uh, centrist Democrats who who kind of understand what I call the China threat. Um, and I've seen this creeping uh, change that they want this uh, cooperation, especially on issues like climate change, and uh, which, of course, has been a, a huge red herring in terms of the, the Chinese approach to it. I think, I think China announced that, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come into compliance with uh, lower emission standards in 2060, when all Chinese leader, current leaders will have no longer be on the scene. And, and this fits with a Chinese negotiating strategy. Uh, the Chinese, when they make an agreement, the Chinese communists, that is, when they make an agreement, that agreement is only valid for the specific time that it's made. And, and you've seen this in almost every agreement that China has made with the West or the United States. They violated it. And the reason they violated it is because they feel that it's only valid at the time it's made. When conditions change, they say, then uh, they're no longer bound by these agreements, whether it's on uh, attacking, conducting cyber attacks or uh, having better uh, coordination of military activities in, in the South China Sea and, and neighboring waters. I mean, I think that was most clear with the Sino-British uh, Treaty for Hong Kong that, you know, they basically said that meant nothing as soon as the handover happened. Yeah. Um, but so do you think with uh, this more aggressive rhetoric, I mean, wolf warrior diplomacy isn't anything new. But do you think that will make, you know, the people in America more aware, perhaps some of those people in the Biden administration that are more of an appeasement camp, as you say? Um, yeah, I, like I said, that there's still an ongoing debate. And, uh, you know, I think the, the recent spy balloon incident was kind of a galvanizing event for a lot of Americans who understood the threat from China. But here they sent a balloon over, uh, then they lied about it. Um, they, they have since recovered, the, the balloon was shot down off the Carolina coast. They've since recovered the details and the mechanics of that. And why haven't they released that to show that China's uh, uh, lies about it being a, a, a civilian weather balloon and a non-threatening entity? They haven't released that. 
And it's clear that they've they've declared it a spy balloon, but at the same time, they also shot down a, a couple of model uh, balloons that and undermined their whole case for countering Chinese uh, high altitude surveillance. So I think they need the administration needs to make public what they know about the surveillance balloon. And and part of the problem is they invited the FBI in to conduct the investigation, which is very unusual, because normally on those kind of foreign intelligence things, the Pentagon would be in charge of what they call foreign exploitation. But once you put the FBI in charge, they have uh, the least transparency of any agency of government. They're, They're notorious for not sharing and, and withholding information from the public about what they know of, of foreign activities. Why do you think that decision was made? Um, I, I think it was part of a policy uh, to not upset the Chinese. I, again, it reflects what I, I'm calling this neo-appeasement approach. Um, and, and there's all, there's further evidence of that too, like the administration's explanation for why they didn't immediately shoot down the balloon when it was over Alaska or remote areas of Montana. Uh, they claimed that they were concerned about uh, civilians on the ground. I, I don't buy that at all. It was clear that uh, Anthony Blinken was on his way to Beijing again as part of this new detente, uh, which began back in November when Biden met uh, Xi Jinping in uh, uh, Bali, Indonesia. And so uh, that they were trying to protect uh, Blinken's trip. And as soon as the event became public, uh, not through the government, through an, an enterprising photojournalist in Billings, Montana, who photographed the thing, and they could no longer sustain this idea that, you know, they were going to keep this secret while this balloon was flying over our missile fields and missile defense sites. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, there was an even a case, uh, uh, Senator Sullivan recently said that uh, the Northern Command sought permission to shoot down the balloon when it was over Alaska, and somehow they were denied doing it. Now, the Pentagon has denied that, but I think that's still out there, and it needs further investigation and, and public, uh, a public explanation for it. I mean, I mean, yeah, I do feel, you know, we've been obviously covering very closely the Biden administration's uh, take on China. And it's been very weird to, like, get a get a feel for it, because, like, on the one hand, Biden will... Um, you know, to put in place some like good sanctions on like uh, chip technology or the support for Taiwan. At the same time, you know, back in, I think it was October, they shut down the China initiative, which was like the special program of the DOJ investigating Chinese espionage. And they shut that down because it was racist, which is, you know, a propaganda tool the Chinese Communist Party uses all the time. So yeah, it really seems like the China policy in the Biden administration is really at war with itself, which isn't entirely unique to the Biden administration. I mean, I think you saw some tensions even in the Trump administration between- Mnuchin. Like, yeah, people who are more focused on the economic stuff and then people who are more focused on um, the threat from the CCP from like defense and, Mm -hmm. you know, diplomatically, so. Well, I would point out, I, I think the still the largest flashpoint is Taiwan. Uh, we've had two Indo-PACOM military commanders say that the Chinese are going to move against Taiwan before the end of the decade or as soon as uh, 2027. And uh, this, to me, is very dangerous. I, there, there's some recent intelligence. I don't know what it is, but uh, I, I think uh, Secretary of State Blinken kind of tipped his hand 
several months ago when he said, yes, uh, the Chinese appear to have uh, speeded up or accelerated their timetable for retaking Taiwan. Now, if you look at the Biden administration, again, they they don't understand uh, foreign threats, in my view, from, from a policy standpoint. They're totally reliant on diplomacy, which is usually, uh, and then they have this this mantra that uh, we have to defer to our allies and friends rather than lead. I think it's a rehash of the uh, Obama policy of leading from behind. But if you if you recall, they had very, very solid intelligence that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, and they were unable to deter the Russians. So here we have intelligence that the Chinese are going to move against Taiwan, and I don't think they're doing enough to deter that. Uh, instead of uh, talking about the threat from Russia and sending billions and billions of in aid to Ukraine, I think we should be sending much more military support and aid uh, to the Asia Pacific region. Uh, you know, for example, why haven't we dispatched a second aircraft carrier strike group? Uh, we have one now based in uh, Tokyo. We should have another one either in Guam or in the Philippines or somewhere in the area. Those are the kind of messages that would signal to the Chinese Communist Party that the U.S. is absolutely serious about defending Taiwan. But instead, um, we talk, we, we hear uh, this effort, oh, we, we need to talk with the Chinese and have uh, diplomatic exchanges. And like I said, Blinken hasn't really canceled his trip to Beijing. He just said it's been postponed. So where is this uh, neo-appeasement? Where is it coming from, in your opinion? Why do they view things this way? Especially when, you know, by the CCP's own use of language, they consider themselves at war with the United States. Yeah, I, I think it's the, a reflection of uh, what I've really focused on over the, over the years is the infiltration of uh, Marxist and leftist radicals within the, the Democratic Party. Um, I couldn't identify people by name with this, but I, I remember back in 1968, the new left radicals were very influenced by uh, Mao Zedong uh, and, uh, and Maoism uh, during the Cultural Revolution. They, it was called the strategy of rage, where uh, rage was used as a tool to cleanse or purify the Chinese Communist Party. And it was an utter disaster. You know, I mean, the death toll was in the hundreds of thousands, if not uh, a million or so. Um, and these radicals in 1968 ended up getting their heads cracked by police in, in, in Chicago. And they said, well, we're not doing this anymore. We're making the long march through the institutions of America. And I think they, these radicals, again, unidentified, unspecific, but with those sentiments, uh, kind of really emerged during the Obama administration and now are back in positions of power in the Biden administration. So that's just my theory. I don't have proof for that, but I, that's what I think. What does that, how does that American Marxist ideology link to the Chinese Communist Party, in your opinion? Well, China is now the leading, for, for leftists and Marxists, China is the, uh, those, the shining light on the hill for radicals and Marxists, because uh, the Soviet Union obviously crashed and burned, uh, thanks to the Reagan administration and, and uh, uh, the Pope, Pope John Paul. Uh, but China has, uh, by 
adopting quasi-capitalist economics has tried to show some form of prosperity. And now, under Xi Jinping, they are aggressively promoting the Chinese communist model as a alternative to democracy. And I think there's clearly an affinity for American Marxists and radicals in looking at China as the future. They would like to see a Chinese communist system here in the United States. There's no question about that. Well, I think I, I think what's what's strange about that is, you know, I think it's pretty should be pretty clear to Americans that China has um, let's call them issues such as uh, the the genocide or at least persecution of ethnic minorities, uh, as well as a massive wealth gap between the poor uh, and the very very rich, which are both very much against what what Marxists believe in, as far as I understand. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, and this, this goes back to one of the key Trump administration policies towards China, which has not been fully uh, backed by the Biden administration. And that was this idea that um, the Chinese Communist Party with 95 million members is, is all of China. The Chinese Communist Party promotes that narrative. I remember many years ago, a PLA colonel who was visiting some think tank in Philadelphia came to my uh, office at the Washington Times. And, and, and uh, I told him, I said, listen, uh, you know, and he said, you're anti-China. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very much pro-China, pro-Chinese people. I'm very much against the Chinese Communist Party. And he went into a, almost a hysteria over saying that, no, there's no difference between the party and the people. This is kind of what I call the false religion of uh, Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics, that, that the, the party represents the Chinese people. It's totally false. The, the Chinese people hate and despise the Communist Party. They recognize that it's totally corrupt and, and they don't want to live under it, but yet they're stuck with this mass totalitarian surveillance state that uh, denies them freedom and, and real opportunity. Right. So, I mean, how, how can American Marxists square the ethnic cleansing and the massive wealth gap that's happening in China with also saying that China is the model we want to look towards? Well, they're, they're believers in Marxism-Leninism. You know, um, every leader since Mao in, in communist China has had one uh, typical narrative, and that is that China must lead the world against uh, global capitalism led by the United States. So Marxist Lenin, this is their religion. They believe in, it's not based on facts, it's based on things like historical materialism, which says that all progress is through struggle. You know, the opposite is true. Uh, all progress is through cooperation. But there are these false precepts and, and they're not based on facts, they're based on, on belief in, in Marxist uh, principles and Leninist practice. And so it doesn't matter uh, for them. And again, uh, this, I'm not saying that all radicals have this view or even all Marxists, but I'm, I know that there are a number of people who uh, advocate this and who believe that China is the model of the future. I mean, you, you, know, you, can, you get a sense of it uh, with Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist who, who once praised uh, China's system. What, what a great system. He said, oh, they have all this... They're making all this progress and they don't have to deal with the uh, 
the nasty business of democracy and competing political pack, uh, parties. One thing I find interesting about people like Tom Freeman or some of these people who are maybe more economic apologists, like Wall Street apologists for China, is that like there doesn't seem to be actually a recognition of the Chinese Communist Party or that China is a Marxist-Leninist system, um, that there is a t attempt to kind of almost like, let's just paper over that part. Like, let's not talk about like everything that they talk about in their speeches about compartmentalize the like human rights stuff and like you know we can do my business make money we can make money in China yeah. yeah yeah I mean that's it's you know I I remember doing a debate in New York City about the threat from uh, China it was a group called Intelligence Squared this was many years ago and I was on the side that said China was a threat and Mike Pillsbury was another one and Mearsheimer. And uh, on the other, on the pro-China side was a businessman whose name I can't remember, but Stapleton Roy, who was a big uh, 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 protege of Henry Kissinger in, in the diplomacy sphere. And after the debate, the businessman said to me, he said, I've been doing business in China for 20 years and I've met a, never met a communist. And my response to him was, well, you should go visit the People's Liberation Army Museum in Beijing. And I was allowed to do that uh, during a travel with uh, the Secretary of Defense, William Cohen, back in the late 90s. And we went to the museum, which had all kinds of uh, destroy the Americans and America's the enemy. But they also had statues of all the communist uh, founders from uh, uh, Marx, Engels, uh, Lenin and Stalin uh, uh, in the museum. And so it, it kind of shows you that uh, there's really, uh, you know, and, and a, uh, the, the head of the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence, uh, Admiral Mike Studeman, said in a recent speech that Americans have, have been totally naive about the threat from China. I totally agree. I've spent the last uh, 20 or 30 years trying to educate people through my reporting and, and through my books on this threat. I think once people understand that threat, and, and as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the balloon incident, I think, was really a wake-up call, kind of a Sputnik moment for a lot of Americans. Um, and again, the administration is trying to tamp that down because they want to they want to go into this new detente policy with China over war fears. You know, and that that is they've even announced that you know we want to compete, but most important, I think John Kirby, the White House strategic communications person, after uh, Chin Gong came out and made this threatening comment about the the path to war unless the U.S. changes course. He said, oh, we want to compete. And most importantly, we want to avoid a conflict. Well, it's, it was interesting what you said about this businessman came up to you and he said in 20 years of doing business with China, he'd never met a communist. But like he definitely met communists, like for sure. And so, but what that tells you is that when you're meeting with Chinese officials, because they're all party members, so they're all communists, like they're just hiding the parts of their ideology that are Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. And they're only presenting the let's make money together side. Yeah. During the Trump administration, uh, I was I, I know Mike Pompeo. I knew him since he was a congressman. I urged him. I said, this is a great opportunity now that you've uh, really revolutionized U.S. policy towards China. What needs to be done and hasn't been done is to 
really do an incredible in-depth study of the crimes and policies of the Chinese Communist Party. And unfortunately, I was told uh, by sources in the State Department that uh, the bureaucracy opposed doing that. And it's, again, this very powerful bureaucracy, the State Department uh, Foreign Service uh, Organization. Um, and again, they don't have a good understanding of the threat. They, it's just a total misunderstanding of the nature of the threat. Pompeo tried to educate a lot of the senior people in the State Department, but now that he's gone, uh, I think they're back to this uh, uh, issue of not really looking at that. But I think that's what really needs to be done. I remember a number of years ago, there was uh, some French uh, academics put out a book called The Black Book of Communism, which really did a, uh, an amazing job of looking at the death toll under communism. In, in China, I believe it was like 60 million people had died as a result of uh, the policies of the Chinese Communist Party. doesn't have to be that focused on the death toll, but I think if we really need to study deeply all of the various aspects. I've tried to do that in my most recent book, Deceiving the Sky, which kind of is a real good uh, primer on the whole threat from China. It's cyber, intelligence, financial, political, uh, and ideological. Well, I think I think really like one of the, the biggest obstacles in having people understand uh, the threat of the Chinese Communist Party is that, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have the feeling that like in school, history, history classes kind of stop at World War II. I don't, don't know even if they make it that far. Yeah, like you don't really learn much about communism. You don't learn about the Soviet Union. I never remember learning about the Holodomor, the, 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 the famine in Ukraine in school. You don't know about the whole history of, you know, what the Cold War was, what it was about. You might learn Vietnam was bad, uh, but that's about it. So I there's just like, you know, generations of Americans who don't know anything about communism, Marxism. Well, the solution is to keep children in high school until they're 27 and just teach them all the things about the 20th century. Yeah, that's sometimes, Bill, I, I make jokes that are not funny. And that was an example. Uh, 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 save us, Bill. What do you what, <laughs> what, what do you think about that? <laughs> not about what Matt said. That, that didn't happen. Yeah, we'll just pretend I didn't say that. Go on. Well, how to educate people. Yeah, like why there's a lack of education about these topics, how people can learn about them. It goes back to the Nixon administration and Henry Kissinger and the great uh, China card gambit, as we say. Um, this was, again, during the Vietnam War, in, in the context of the Vietnam War. Uh, Nixon reached out to China as a hedge against the Soviet Union. And they developed this cooperation. Much of it was secret at the time, which included the deployment of U.S. intelligence listening posts in Western China. And these, these uh, listening posts were focused on the uh, Soviet missile fields in, uh, in the Russian Far East uh, as somehow, you know, so there was some, some real cooperation and this was Cold War cooperation. I would note here that one of the uh, uh, CCP's most famous uh, propaganda tropes is that the United States should not have a Cold War mentality, which is code for anti-communism. During the Cold War, you know, the U.S. toward the end of the Cold War in, in the 
the uh, uh, 70s and 80s, the U.S. was fairly aligned with um, uh, China on a number of issues, especially the, the Soviet Union. After the Soviet Union fell in December of 1991, there was never a reassessment of the policy. It, this grand uh, uh, gambit of uh, getting China to open up was considered so great that there was never a reevaluation of it. The, the fact that, you know, here they were during between uh, 67 and 77, they had the great proletarian cultural revolution, which literally destroyed uh, China. And the U.S. basically bailed them out at that time. Um, then again, after the Tiananmen massacre, when, you know, innocent uh, pro-democracy protesters were run over by tanks, but there was a real push. And we, we learned from the Tiananmen papers that there were, there were communist officials who were sympathetic and who wanted to bring about some type of democratic political reform. Again, uh, nothing was done to pressure and support those forces. Instead, uh, the forces of hardline Communist Party officials like Deng Xiaoping and others uh, were able to take and continue power. And they reacted against uh, the kind of changes that took place in the Soviet Union. So that's really the problem is that the U.S. policy has been an utter failure in, in trying to bring about real change and bring about real freedom inside uh, communist China. The, the Trump administration started to change the, America's China policy. And it wasn't so clear in the first couple of years of his administration, but uh, especially by the final year, it was pretty clear that there was a, a, a real shift. But uh, that doesn't seem to have brought about any kind of like real reckoning. Reckoning in what sense? Uh, the the U.S. still is generally trading with China uh, in the same way it has been. In fact, trade with China has even gone up slightly in the last few years. Our medical supply chain is still absolutely dependent on China despite yeah. COVID. Right. And despite tariffs, uh, there's there's still like a tremendous amount of trade with China. Uh, even, you know, many companies have pulled out, but for the most part, uh, the pattern is to still keep most manufacturing in China. Well, I think this was a shortcoming of the Trump policy. And, and this was failing to state clearly that the Chinese Communist Party is an adversary and enemy. Uh, instead, because of pressure from the business community and and the decades of economic integration between China and the United States, they settled instead for this idea of strategic competitor. Now, it was an important step forward, but that has also sparked what we now call the decoupling debate. Um, there are a number of people that say we should decouple. I, I agree completely. We should not be doing business. The, these financial companies uh, are concerned about making money and they don't realize that the investments that are being made in China are supporting the Chinese military and a genocidal regime, which is engaged in genocide in Xinjiang and probably Tibet as well. But I mean, what if that genocide is profitable? <laughs> With slave labor, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's really cheap labor you can get from Uyghurs. 
Yeah, they, you know, the Chinese have been engaged in in that practice for quite some time. And again, uh, you know, I mean, I can remember not too long ago, there was a big push for a lot of American companies to avoid using prison labor, and it kind of went away. There was never there was never a successful resolution to stating don't buy Chinese products, whether it's uh, tennis shoes, uh, sneakers, or whatever, if it's being made by prison labor. And I'm sure that that's still the case, but nothing was successful in cutting it off. I, we really need to begin decoupling from China. I think you know. I think the recent uh, blustering and warlike comments from Chinese leaders uh, should be uh, a cause for concern, and, and sh- we should lead to uh, disengaging economically and politically from China. It's not helping the people of China. It's helping to preserve a, uh, a corrupt uh, Chinese Communist Party dictatorship. Well, do you think the actions the U.S. has taken and this increase in aggressive rhetoric uh, from the Chinese Communist Party, do you think that means they're closer to threatening some kind of war? Are they closer to invading Taiwan? Is this uh, is this preventing that or leading to it? Well, I think that uh, it could be. I mean, it's hard to say, but... Um, it's certainly, again, I think it's back to the, uh, this idea that the Biden administration made a huge mistake in saying, oh, we want to avoid a war at all costs. There's, there's a word for that. It's called appeasement. You know? And we learned in the 30s, you know, appeasing Hitler was a huge mistake that led to a, a major war. And so, uh, you know, the, the trends are not good. You know, I, m- I remember... Uh, the late Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, he said, weakness is provocative. It's true. When you project weakness, uh, it provokes aggressors into taking action. Um, This was clearly evident as a result of the debacle of the Afghanistan withdrawal, which I think led at least uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia to figure that uh, the United States wasn't going to do anything if he invaded Ukraine. I think the Chinese are probably a little more circumspect, um, but they understand that they have been developing these asymmetric weapon, uh, what they call assassin's mace. It goes back to ancient Chinese strategy, which is uh, says, how does a weaker power defeat a stronger one? And they've been making tremendous progress. Take, for example, hypersonic missiles. Uh, the Chinese have developed an array of hypersonic missiles. These are ultra-high-speed uh, missiles. Now, ballistic missiles are also ultra-high-speed, but the difference is that hypersonic missiles can maneuver at these high speeds as they're going to their target. And this makes targeting them with missile defenses uh, uh, very, very difficult. And uh, so now the Chinese have these hypersonic missiles uh, they have over 30 wind tunnels for developing these missiles. And that kind of gives you an indication of how big a program it is for them. Uh, the U.S. has probably one uh, that's being used right now, and there's a crash program to try and match uh, their hypersonic missiles. The Russians also are ahead of the United States. And, and by the way, the Chinese uh, hypersonic missiles they don't distinguish whether they're going to be armed with nuclear warheads or with conventional warheads. 
whereas the U.S. has said already because of anti-nuclear sentiment by the, uh, the liberals and, and left within the United States, they've announced that the U.S. hypersonic missiles will not have nuclear warheads. So these are not going to deter, uh, as we need to deter, uh, both China and Russia from using these weapons. You know, I mean, you mentioned the Assassin's Mace idea, and like to me, hypersonic weapons are not the scariest weapon the Chinese Communist Party has. To me, like TikTok is a much bigger weapon that the Chinese Communist Party is leveraging. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, uh, yeah, TikTok, there's a, there's a, a push on Capitol Hill to try and uh, ban that. The federal government has announced that it's going to ban it from uh, um, federal uh, devices. Um, it's a huge information collection platform. Um, Huawei Technologies is another company that uh, uh, the Trump administration successfully targeted. This, this was a company that was known to be working with the Chinese government. Uh, again, it's a, there's a lack of understanding on the part of Americans about the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and its system. So they, I think it was in 2015, uh, the Chinese Communist Party in, instituted a, a new regulation. I won't call it a law because they don't really have laws there, uh, despite their uh, propaganda to say that they're a law-abiding nation. Uh, this new regulation requires all Chinese companies to be able to allow Chinese intelligence through the Ministry of State Security or the Ministry of Public Security or the People's Liberation Army to access that data. So if you have a uh, Huawei uh, handset in China and, and probably anywhere else, that data is going directly, your personal data would be going directly to the Ministry of State Security. Now, what are they doing with the data? Now, this is a, another uh, fascinating uh, assassin's mace weaponry. They have been gathering masses and masses of personal data from the United States. And how have they done this? They've done this by attacking various institutions. Uh, I'll, I'll tick off a few. First was the Office of Personnel Management, which is the federal government's uh, repository of federal records. They were able to steal uh, some two or three million records from there, including some of the most sensitive uh, information on our military personnel, our intelligence personnel, and our national security officials. Um, secondly, they went after uh, national U.S. national health providers, such as Anthem, stealing uh, tens of thousands of personal records. They've also stole, gone after hotels and airlines and stolen uh, transportation data. Uh, so, so the question is, well, what are they going to do with all this data? They're going to take this data and then they're going to apply uh, special artificial intelligence uh, to that data. And from that, that, from that data will emerge uh, valuable tools for intelligence recruitment or targeting of uh, people overseas that the Chinese Communist Party regards as enemies. So I, I would say it's both offensive and, and, and defensive in nature. You know, I think this, this ties into something that I know you've talked about, the idea that um, part of Marxist ideology is, is a different definition of truth. And you see this a lot with the Chinese Communist Party, like how, uh, you know, the big push in their propaganda the past couple of years has been saying, oh, China actually has the best democracy. 
So I think your point is that the China is coming up with its different definition of they, they actually see truth as meaning something a little different than we think of it as. And that the, their whole social media push using TikTok and stuff is a way to actually change how people conceive of reality and truth. Hmm. Yeah, this is the, uh, the information warfare that they're waging against us. Uh, uh, they and, and they've stepped it up in just, you know, the last few months. We've seen a, a, a major increase in attacks on the United States. Uh, two two uh, glowing examples. Okay, so first was the Chinese response to the coronavirus pandemic, right? Um, began in Wuhan. Um, they were able to influence the debate on that uh, by first denying that it, it came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, and so for almost two years, the Chinese narrative was adopted by what I would regard as corrupt uh, scientists outside of China. Uh, in order to protect China from its critics. Uh, and it's really a, a remarkable uh, feat that they were able to do that. Not only did they deny us access, and there's, there's recent, just in the recent uh, weeks, there had been new information coming out about what happened at the, uh, at the Wuhan Institute. And people are starting to say, oh, yeah, you know, it, it came from the, the lab, probably. It's more likely it came from the lab. And yet four intelligence agencies, as part of their formal assessment several months ago, said that, oh, we still think it was natural emergence. Well, my question is, where's the evidence for natural emergence? Uh, the World Health Organization, along with the Chinese Communist Party, did a survey of 80,000 animals uh, in China. And guess what? They didn't find a single animal that was carrying the COVID virus. Uh, so there's no evidence that it came from an animal. That, that's Again, it's just pure speculation. Um, and anyway, so the Chinese were able to obscure the source of the uh, origin of, of COVID, and they blamed the United States. Their, their whole, and, and yet there was never a strong reaction from the Western world and specifically the United States. Uh, similarly, on the war in Ukraine, uh, Chinese propaganda and their official diplomats have been blaming the United States for causing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there's no pushback. I mean, the only we used to have what's known as the U.S. Information Agency during the Cold War. It went out of business in 99 and it was never it was subsumed to the State Department, the same people that want to appease China right now. And they created something called the Global Engagement Center. And uh, the Associated Press just recently ran a piece about how uh, the Chinese were supporting the Russians through propaganda. And they quoted an official of this uh, State Department agency as saying, well, we're really not going to go try and counter Chinese propaganda because it would be like uh, whack-a-mole or something like that. So in other words, the State Department has literally surrendered the information warfare field to the Chinese. And we're getting killed in that space. It, I mean, we urgently need to have a regular, sustained effort to counteract Chinese Communist Party lies and deception. I mean, that's China uncensored. <laughs> just wish YouTube weren't constantly trying to shut us down. And we certainly don't get any funding from the U.S. government. Sadly, no. You should. You should be. 
Yeah. It it but, doesn't seem like they're really interested from what you're saying. Yeah, but but no. of course, if the, if the U.S. government funded us, then you know they might also say that for continued funding, we'd like you to please not cover the following topics, and then you know, we'd be in trouble. Yeah, I mean, like it was amazing. COVID was amazing to me how well the Chinese Communist Party got like Western media to parrot their propaganda. One that calling it a lab leak was racist when like. Oh, it actually came from, don't say it came from a lab. That's racist. It's what's not racist is to say it came from a wet market where people were eating bats and pangolins. That's not racist. Yeah. I mean, even before that, they, they, when uh, state run media started calling it the Wuhan virus, that was January of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then they decided to change that because they didn't want the association with China. And then they like, we all call it COVID-19, uh, which is a break from typically how the WHO has named viruses. So even the very beginning, basically getting the world to stop calling it the Wuhan virus or the China virus was a Chinese Communist Party push using racism as the reason. And then how how often Western media would praise uh, the China's COVID policies? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think even the World Health Organization was doing that in the beginning. So yeah, it was. I think. With the lab leak thing, what was interesting, though, is because I think it was so effective in part because there was a lot of self-interest involved in, you know, scientists, virologists who had been doing these kinds of, you know, gain-of-function experiments. And then if you like actually explain to people what they were doing, that you're making viruses more dangerous in order to prevent a dangerous virus, then that could blow up the entire field of virology. So there was a lot of, like parallels in between where their interests aligned with the Chinese Communist Party's interests and in also shutting down the idea that it came from a lab. So that was kind of a perfect storm in that sense. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I felt firsthand the uh, censorship uh, uh, of that issue back in January of 2020. Uh, for a story I did in, in the Washington Times, um, I interviewed a, an Israeli military intelligence expert named Danny Shahom, who was an expert on the Chinese biological warfare program. And he said, probably the virus came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, uh, I was viciously smeared by the Washington Post and USA Today so-called fact checkers who said that my story, which was based on completely open sources, uh, was a, an example of false information about the virus. And, uh, you know, I spent a, a good part of two years uh, trying to make the case that it did come from a lab. And, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of reporting on it. And it's overwhelming. Uh, for example, uh, few people know that uh, until recently, the number of known viruses in the world were around uh, somewhere of several hundred. Well, the Chinese, through research, they're obsessed with viruses. They've in just the last decade, they've uncovered some 2000 new viruses. So they're collecting all these dangerous viruses. They're manipulating them in labs, ostensibly for vaccines, but probably for biological warfare purposes. And nobody has said, why doesn't China stop doing this dangerous research? Why haven't there been sanctions on China for conducting dangerous research, which probably led to the pandemic. It's because the most dangerous virus is communism. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
Yes, Shelley. But this this does get back to like I'm curious to your thoughts about like this this ideology, the communist Marxist ideology, like really like what's like their their goal of like changing what is truth. Well, I mean, I think you had an interesting thing in your book where you said that the ideology of Chinese communism employs lies and deception as a fundamental operating principle. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's the idea that uh, whatever that in order to defeat capitalism, you know, that is the the motivating drive for Chinese Marxism, Leninism to defeat capital world capitalism led by the United States. All means must be used. There there should be no limits on that. So uh, as uh, as Ronald Reagan said of the Soviets, he said, they will do anything, lie and cheat in order to advance their cause. It's absolutely the same case with the Chinese Communist Party. No respect for the truth. As you mentioned earlier, uh, this idea that China is a democracy is, is a total lie. The idea that China has rule of law is another total lie. The idea that China is a peaceful power is another lie. All of these things are part of the ideology driving towards making uh this country, this communist ruled country, the most powerful nation in the world. And they believe in their ideology has to be replace the Western free market democratic system. So uh, we are headed for a world run by Chinese communism unless we take steps to counteract it and to fight against it. And that's why it's so important to educate people to the realities, not just of the practices and behaviors, whether it's human rights violations, whether it's supplying missile and nuclear technology to North Korea and rogue states and Iran. Uh, but it's the ideology behind it that must be learned and understood and countered. Well, so, what, what do you think is one of the biggest parts of that ideology that people do not understand? That, well, like I said, my, my businessman uh, colleague in, in New York that time said, they don't think it's coming. They think that, that uh, communism is just a, a coat that they're wearing, that they're actually Chinese nationalists. The, the same argument was made about the Soviet Union. Um, and then George Kennan in his famous Mr. X uh, talked about the sources of Soviet conduct. And, and that's what led to containment. We need to do the similar thing. We need to look at the sources of Chinese Communist Party behavior. And those sources are stemming from an ideology. They're motivated by an ideology. And uh, I think part of the problem is that we have uh, a, a kind of a, a negative culture, which I call anti-anti-communism, that uh, based on the exact uh, excesses of anti-communism uh, during the 50s, that there's a virulent, uh, not so much pro-communism, but a virulence against anyone that opposes communism. So we need to find ways to make people understand that this is, this is not a, a marginal or imaginary threat. This is, the communist, Chinese communist ideology is a real and growing threat, and they are literally on the march. My, my view is that they're using the Belt and Road Initiative, which is ostensibly a uh, economic and developmental tool to spread communism, because wherever they do their investment, uh, they demand uh, total uh, obedience to Chinese communist ideas and, and promotions. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a real and growing threat. And 
people need to understand it. I, you know, and I, not, I, I just think that it's uh, we we've got to do much more. And and you know, I've tried. I, I appeal as as a result of my book I War, which talked about this information warfare, war and peace in the information age. Um, you know, I appealed. We need a new USIA for the information age. We need uh, digital tools that can really promote uh, truth. And relying on the Western media is no longer going to be enough. Right now, our, our news media is balkanized and politicized. And uh, as a result, it's been less effective in being able to counter it. So this is an area where the U.S. government doesn't need to promote its own propaganda. We can do that through our news media. But what we do need to do is provide a, a clear and concise tool to counteract various lies and deceptions of the Chinese Communist Party that will give people uh, the power to understand the, the problem better. I mean, there's a real challenge with that, though, right, which is that, you know, we've seen increasingly that um, a lot of establishment media are willing to parrot the the line of, of the current administration on a variety of issues, right? And so, which is to say, that indicates that the, the administration has a certain viewpoint that they want to push. So if you put uh, additional power in the hands of the U.S. government uh, to spread information, uh, how do you prevent that from just being you know, yeah. essentially propaganda at American citizens for whatever the the people in power want. Which could end up being very pro-CCP. It could be anything, yeah. But, yeah. It, but it certainly would be pro-whoever's in power. Yeah, that, that's why I say it's, it's not an easy problem. And one of the problems has been that the public affairs bureaucracy in the U.S. government has become uh, so powerful. It's kind of like the tail wagging the dog. Uh, that they have been opposing all efforts to try to do counter disinformation operations. And, and it is a problem. You have to worry about that the being politicized. And, and I think uh, uh, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter is really uh, something that's very valuable in providing some real balance and exposing the kind of government censorship that, that took place uh, under the previous ownership. So, I mean, you've talked a lot about education and the idea that people need to understand that being against the Chinese Communist Party is not racism or some new form of McCarthyism. But uh, what what are some other things that, you know, ordinary Americans can do? Well, you know, that's that's a good question. It's it's really up to our leaders to do it. So I would say that ordinary Americans can at least appeal to their leaders, especially in Congress, um, to really take uh, take action to try and prevent China from taking over the world. It's 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 literally that's that's what we're looking at. Um, but uh, it's not easy to do right now. America is very divided politically, and so it's very difficult to work on a consensus. But I think that on the issue of the China threat, there is an emerging consensus between both uh, political parties. Now, uh, the more and more uh, the Democratic Party is subverted and uh, influenced by radical Marxists, that's going to make that much more difficult. Is there some kind of, I don't know, uh, podcast 
that people could listen to to understand this better. And this is not a shameless plug on our part. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Matt, uh, actually, was... <laughs> yeah, uh, about a year ago, I launched a new podcast, which I'm it's new for me. It's called uh, Victory Over Communism with Bill Gertz. And I try to do one or two episodes each month. It's it's totally self. It's a freelance project. It's not related to The Washington Times, but it basically looks at two things. One, I I address uh, Marxism, Leninism with Chinese characteristics for the new era, which is the latest iteration under Xi Jinping of Chinese communism. And I look at how what the ideology is, why it's incorrect and wrong. And then I offer a counter proposal, which is based in part on Judeo-Christian principles. I then do a news segment of the podcast, and then I end up with a short interview section. And I've interviewed some amazing people, including Miles Yu, the former State Department China policy maker, who I, I mentioned earlier, and uh, former uh, Assistant Secretary of State uh, for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, David Stilwell. And so I think it's an important tool, especially for young people. Um, I think that uh, it's, it's hard to uh, talk about ideology uh, like that. But again, it, it's, it's helpful that I, I always mention that I said, this is not about people. This is about ideology. In America, people are free to believe in whatever they want. But the, the point of the podcast is to try to help people to better understand what, what, we're, what we're up against and what we're facing in these uh, uh, destructive ideologies. I'm curious, why do, you, why do you feel like the Judeo-Christian part is so important in countering uh, communist ideology? Well, I, if you look at uh, uh, communists and Marxists, the overriding feature of it is atheism. And if you take God out of the equation, then any crime against humanity can be justified. And I think that that's largely the reason why we've why uh, communism has been so destructive and, and caused so many uh, such death and, and imposed such tyranny. And do you think that um, the issue, like you talked about uh, Marxist communist ideology in America and the Chinese Communist Party, are those issues that are like on two separate tracks? Are they tied together? Can you defeat one without defeating the other? Yeah, I think that they're definitely separate. Yeah, the Chinese threat is much larger. Um, the American Marxist issue is really kind of a combination of people who believe in, in Marxism and other radicals who are more or less, you could almost say anarchist or uh uh, they, they're just they've they've developed. There's a there's a whole school of thought that looks at uh, anti-religion and the United States as the source of all the world's evils. And I think so. Those are two kind of separate things, and they align on some issues. But for the most part, uh, the real uh, giant gorilla is the is the Chinese Communist Party, and and efforts must be taken to to counteract that and and ultimately replace it. Um, you know, I think uh, calling for regime change, we don't need to call for regime change, but we could call for party change. And I think that when people understand what's happening in China has uh, Xi Jinping is revitalizing Marxism, Leninism. Uh, the government is really no is, is more or less a figurehead now that even when they send officials to meet with Western officials, they don't send government officials, they send Communist Party officials. So I think 
if we understand that, I think that that could be a first step in, in trying to counter the Chinese Communist Party. Do you think it's still possible to do that? It's not too late? It's getting late, but it's not too late. A slight bit of optimism. I think that's pretty much par for this podcast. It's not absolute despair, but pretty close. A little bit of despair. Pretty close. Yeah. Well, Bill, uh, thank you for joining us. We'll put a link to your podcast below. Also, you know, I recommend to anyone watching to check out your new book, Deceiving the Sky, uh, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. Yeah, and if people... People want information. I have a website. It's called The Gertz File. It's at GertzFile.com. And on Twitter, I'm at Bill Gertz and other truth uh, social and other uh, other social platforms. Is your tagline the truth, Gertz? <laughs> no. It's uh, get the inside story. <laughs> <laughs> not quite as good as mine but uh, you, you know you do you uh everybody gertz uh, thanks for joining us this was this was a lot of fun having you on great thanks so much for having me something that kind of got me thinking um you know when we were talking about you know mccarthyism and um it got me wondering if like uh it's really a good idea when i call communists um what's that word shelley i use Oh, come on. As soon as you said McCarthyism, I knew what you were trying to do. <laughs> I, I was looking over and I saw Shelly's face. She's just doing just the like, gym like, stare to the it, camera. It was, yeah, it was, it was, I knew Shelly knew. <laughs> I thought I had you that time. No, no, Chris, no. It's, it's really hard to trick Shelly. Yeah, to what, say. What we need is some sort of ideology of deception. Uh, yeah, maybe you could go ask Xi Jinping. <laughs> Xi Jinping, I really want Shelly to say dirty reds. <laughs> if you get her to do that, I will do anything. I will help you invade Taiwan. <laughs> I just, this is the only thing in life I want anymore. I think that's actually the first time you've actually said the thing that you want me to say, because I think a lot of times people have been confused about what it is. Have like, I not been saying dirty reds enough? I'm sorry, Shelly. <laughs> I will say dirty reds a lot more. I'm sorry this has upset you. No, no, not upset me. So so wh why don't you want to say dirty reds, Shelley? Do you really want me to seriously explain it? I do want you to explain it. I think I've explained it before. It's because it plays into the McCarthyism thing. It, because it's too easy once you start calling names for, like when people start calling all of their enemies Nazis, that word ceases to have any meaning. And then, you know, it becomes about calling people names and not about actually exposing what the dangers of that ideology is. Oh, that's a very intelligent, thoughtful answer. Are you defending Nazis, Shelley? That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we would get if, if we literally muted out everything Shelley had just said. Which is basically how a lot of uh, news media reports things. Shelley Jung says, quote, Something Nazis. Yeah. Uh, it's like that Jordan Peterson interview where that woman just kept saying, so you're saying that and something completely different than the last thing he said. He's like, no, that's not what I said. So you're yeah. saying you want to round up women and put them into concentration camps. No, how did you get that? <laughs> All right, whatever. But, anyway, but I mean, I've explained myself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's good to kind of go over this once every several months because it's been a long campaign 
to get you to say dirty reds and you have so far refused to say it. You've even refused to say it completely by accident. You've even tried to get me to say the words separately so that you can somehow <laughs> splice them together. <laughs> the never-ending quest to take you completely out of context. Someone, somebody who watches this show who's on Reddit, go through everything <laughs> Shelley has ever said and find the words dirty and red and splice them together. It has to be reds, though which is not a common phrase. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, in a few years, AI technology will be good enough that we could just- Just deep fake it? Deep fake the whole thing. Well, there's something to be optimistic about. Yeah. I'm so glad that we ended this podcast with this very enlightening and serious discussion about this topic. Do you have something intelligent you want to add? If I did, I don't remember it anymore. <laughs> well, I, I think- the one of the most interesting things that's happened is the spy balloon story. And I know we've talked about this because even though like as a form of spying, that spy balloon collected far less information than TikTok, TikTok or the CCP's hacks of any of these institutions like OPM, yeah. uh, or, uh, you know, their general internet surveillance or really like almost any of their other spying things. And yet the spy balloon is so visible and so obviously a violation uh, that it's brought people from different parts of the political aisle uh, together to be like, yeah, there's there's something we have to wake up about. Yeah, even in some ways, I think it was more visceral than COVID. Like I think with COVID, like just because of all the insanity. Because what's, what's the meaning? origin of COVID? Who knows? Nobody But, but the could spy balloon couldn't have like accidentally come from a wet market. <laughs> it was a pangolin that launched the spy balloon. <laughs> oh, no. A pangolin and a bat. Somewhere in the world, there's this one super evil pangolin that's responsible <laughs> for everything. I mean, really, the CCP should have just said that. It was a pangolin. <laughs> and if you say otherwise, you're racist. And then the New York Times would have been frantically writing, it's, it was a pangolin balloon. If you, you're racist, if you say Anonymous otherwise. sources say it was a... Well, I mean, I think the... Also, COVID, it, there was just too much stuff attached to COVID. Like, it wasn't a simple story. Yeah, right? plus, like, the day-to-day -day fear of, like, oh, am I can, can I breathe in public? Yeah, or, you know, am I going to... I think we forget also, now, three years on, how scary it was in the first few yeah, months. Yeah, people when, disinfecting their, like, grocery shopping. Or just, like, packages. not knowing, like, how people were getting it or how people could get it. And, I mean, we were in New York City. There were refrigerator trucks of bodies outside the hospitals. Like the first wave was very scary to people. And I think that just drives out like the whole, like what, where did it come from and stuff from people's minds. Where is it coming? Where did it come from? Where did, where'd you go? Yeah. Where did you come from? COVID? Oh no. <laughs> okay. That's good. Yeah. Uh, good point, Shelley. <laughs> I'm glad you make good points that aren't undermined <laughs> by something incredibly stupid. Either matter, I say. Um, but okay, Matt's but, point but, about the spy balloon being a good, you know, that was a good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, what, what would the show be without me and Chris, especially me, making stupid comments? Uh, the answer is nothing. So let's, let's leave it at Possibly that. Possibly a more watched podcast. <laughs> But and if, we wouldn't want that. But if you're still watching and you've made it this far, it's because you like the way we go off the rails. So, yeah. The train wreck you. every time. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Can we end it now?
Why? Do you have somewhere to go? Do you have laundry to do, maybe? You got a whole basket full of dirty reds? Thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chong. And I'm Matt Ganesha. We'll talk to you next time.